Hey there, it's Susan Pierce Thompson and welcome to the weekly vlog. Oh my goodness, I have so much to talk to you about this week. Super exciting. Uh, science, I want to talk to you about science and science that pertains to this cookbook, the Bright Line Eating Cookbook that you're about to have in your hands sometime soon. Um, okay, so here's my fear if I'm honest. The cookbooks are going to arrive and some people are going to be like, hey, there's no sexy enough recipes in here for me, uh, right? People whose brains are still not healed from their food addiction. And um, then other people are going to be like, are you kidding me? Like, look at all these sexy recipes. None of this is simple enough for me. I would never use this book. It's completely triggering. Um, and as a matter of fact, I need to throw it away now because <laughs> um, there's too many pictures of like yummy food in here. That's my fear. So I want to talk, I mean, those are just stories I made up in my head. That's None of that's actually going to happen. You're going to get the cookbook in your hands and you're going to go, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. This is helpful. This is fabulous. That's what's actually going to happen. Um, but I want to talk in this vlog about a very important reframe. And um, this is a reframe that is a slice of, uh, you know how I've been talking about the science bundle that you actually get access to if you get the cookbook and then claim your bonuses and stuff, you get access to purchase the science bundle for $97. So um, the first lecture in that science bundle, the best science talks of Bright Line Eating, um, the first lecture is uh, the science of food addiction reprised. So a whole new take on the science of food addiction. What I'm about to share in this vlog is a tiny slice, like 1 20th, like 5% of that lecture. But it's really important. Um, and it pertains to the cookbook and why it might be that different brains in different states of healing might perceive this cookbook in those two completely different ways. It also relates to umami, which I don't know if you've heard of. Um, if you have, I can't wait to tell you more all about it. Um, and this phone call that I had this week. So um, when I started this whole Bright Line Eating brouhaha, it was in the back of my mind, like, I wonder if certain people from my past that I have not been able to find on Facebook or through social media or whatever, people like long lost people from my past, I wonder if they'll reach out to me and be like, hey, it's me. Um, of course, the people that I was curious about, um, like, I'd be so curious if my boyfriend Johnny from when I was 17 would ever reach out to me. Um, he's got this, like, really common Facebook, like, there's, like, hundreds of, of, of him in Facebook. I would never, of that name, I would never, most of them without profile pictures. I could never find him. Anyway, I'm just curious, right? Johnny's never contacted me. But I got an email this past week from this girl I went to college with. Her name's Karen, K-A-R-I-N. And for her anonymity, I'll um, just use her last initial, Karen G. And she's in 12-step food recovery now. She's in um, one of the 12-step food programs, one I've never been in. But there's like seven or eight 12-step food programs with significant membership now. Um, some of them are more rigorous. Some of them are more uh permissive um she's in one of the rigorous ones so she was in a meeting one day and and someone arrived at the meeting and was like 
huh, this seems kind of like bright line eating. And she was like, huh, what's bright line eating? And the person started telling her all about it. And Susan Pierce Thompson, and she's like, oh, I went to college with her. So she reaches out to me and we're talking on the phone. It's been 26 years since we've had any contact. And I literally had no idea, like, would we have anything in common anymore? And of course we do. She's been married 17 years. She's got two boys that are like roughly my kids' age. And anyway, we had so much in common. So she says this thing to me while we're talking that I'll never forget. She's laughing and she says, yeah, my husband says, I don't have a sweet tooth, I have a meat tooth. I don't have a sweet tooth, I have a meat tooth. I don't know if there's anyone out there that can relate. So she's like, yeah, like I don't care about sugar or sweetness but like, give me fatty meats and cheeses and I'm insane. Okay, that's basically the thrust of the idea. I don't have a sweet tooth, I have a meat tooth, a savory tooth. And um, so this is something Ari Witten and I have argued about in the past and my perspective on it has really shifted over the five years that I've been involved in this Bright Line Eating enterprise. I used to think that food addiction was exclusively driven by sugar and flour. And in the book, the first book, Bright Line Eating, I really talked about how it's sugar and flour addiction, not fat addiction, for example, and not salt addiction that's driving addiction, food addiction. I have a more nuanced perspective now, and I wanna share that with you. So, okay, let's talk science. Taste buds. If you were educated around the time I was, um, you were educated that there's four kinds of taste buds. Salty, sweet, bitter, and sour. And then maybe someone updated you as science advanced and said, oh, there's a fifth kind of taste bud and it's umami flavor. What's umami? Like meaty flavor, okay? Now, another way to look at food addiction is as a hijacked form of natural food reward orientation that the brain evolved to make sure we didn't starve to death when food was really hard to come by, right? Like to understand the brain, you need to just keep in mind the environment that it was intended to grapple with, right? An environment where if, if the person who owned the brain was not acutely attuned to the necessity of procuring enough calories with, an, with the right kinds of properties, the person would die, right? Like that's the environment that our brain um, evolved to handle. Okay, so starting in 1988, a series of studies was done. You may have heard me talk about food addiction being driven in two ways. I've, you may have never heard me say this out loud in exactly this way, but in different times, you've heard me talk about food addiction being driven by a digestive process like stuff arriving in the stomach. For example, when I talk about, um, 
you know, you don't want to disrupt the fiber lattice network and you don't want to um, overly increase the surface area that the molecules um, are exposed to the digestive enzymes. I don't know, <laughs> that sentence became ungrammatical, but you know, you see what I'm saying, right? Like, um, molecules exposed to digestive enzymes, boom, the stuff hit goes through the digestive lining hard and fast and hits the blood sugar, right? The bloodstream, however, um, like intensely, right? So that's a digestive process. That's like in the stomach, in the small intestine, wherever, in the digestive system. And then a second, a second pathway from the taste buds to addictive centers in the brain, okay? So the research on this started in 1988 when um, a scientist discovered that he could inject straight into the stomach. Now this was done with rodents as, as most research like this is. They didn't hurt the rodents, but um, they would inject straight into the stomach partially digested starch. So we're talking straight glucose, right? The equivalent of flour. And at the same time, expose the taste buds to either a grape flavor or a cherry flavor, and they counterbalanced it. If the starch came with the grape flavor, the brain wired to prefer grape flavor. If the starch came with the cherry flavor, the brain wired to prefer cherry flavor. So it was counterbalanced. And that way they knew that the flavor preference was driven by the simultaneous presence of this glucose straight into the stomach, okay? Then what happened was this flavor preference developed over time to become really strong. Later research showed that it was a flood of dopamine in the nucleus accumbens that was, a, that was the mediator of this wiring up of this process, okay? So this is very similar to the food addiction stuff we've always talked about. Dopamine in the nucleus accumbens, driving the wanting of more, but now it's driving a flavor preference that is associated with, oh my goodness, there's a lot of straight up glucose in my stomach. What would be straight up glucose? Any, the inside of a white potato, any kind of flour, any kind of smoothie, right? That's gonna be glucose um, broken down from any kind of uh, fiber that would block its flood right into the digestive system. Um, yeah, any kind of bread, any kind of pasta, any, yeah, anything made out of flour, basically. All right, so there's that. Later research showed that it works with, with protein too, like meat, essentially. It also works with fat as well. It also works with high calorie density as well. And of course, it works with fructose sweet stuff, okay? So basically the presence of certain intense nutrients in the stomach will wire up a preference for whatever that flavor is, okay? Now, as we know from our community here, some people's brains are more sensitive to that wiring up process than others, okay? Later research showed that this also works with certain tastes on the taste buds. Salty tastes, sweet tastes, and umami tastes, okay? So what is umami? Everybody knows what salty is. Everybody knows, knows what sweet is. What is umami? Umami is a flavor that you primarily get from meat, but you also get it from tomatoes, like especially cooked tomatoes. You also get it from nuts, especially like walnuts. You also get it from mushrooms. 
You also get it from soy, especially like soy sauce. Uh, the, um, what would you call it? Like industrial processed foods versions of umami are monosodium glutamate, MSG, hydrolyzed yeast. I don't know if you've seen hydrolyzed yeast protein on an ingredients list or soy protein or like soy protein isolates. Those are ex extracts of umami, okay? Like, like <clears throat> umami hit straight to the taste buds. Or you can do it the sort of natural organic way and make a marinara sauce with walnuts and shiitake mushrooms or something. Okay, or eat a steak. Okay, cheese, right, okay. So um, you can just Google this like, you know, it's all over Google. Umami's like all the rage lately. Oh yeah, what's umami? So this is basically people who have a preference for savory over sweet, okay? Um, but we all have it to some degree, all right? So here's the thing about food addiction. You can think of it as a heightened example of food reward the natural biological process by which the brain is protecting us so we don't starve to death, and it knows to prioritize certain kinds of foods, high-density calorie foods, sweet foods, starchy foods, salty foods, meaty foods, okay? Now here's the thing. There are tremendous individual differences in these flavor preferences when it comes to addiction. And I learned this a long time ago as I was talking with my besties. This is like forever ago. I was talking with my bestie, Kathy, who's now in my mastermind group. And Kathy, this was like, oh gosh, I don't know. We were in food recovery together, whatever, let's say 15 years ago, I don't know, long time ago. And we were talking about our favorite binge foods. We hadn't eaten them in years. And we were talking about our favorite binge foods. So maybe it was 10 years ago, whatever. And she was like, oh yeah, I forget what she said, something like Cheetos. <laughs> I was like, Cheetos? <gasps> I mean, no offense, but like not something I would ever binge on. But then I was like, cookie dough. And she was like, oh yeah, I would never eat that. <laughs> and just, you know, I don't know if it's worth having this conversation with anybody. It's probably not, it could be triggering. Just take my word for it. Like the foods that people binge on are uh, pretty varied, right? Like one person's binge food is another person's, yeah, I would never even bother. And some of that has to do with the experience of wiring up the brain in certain directions. And some of that has to do with, we don't know what yet because nobody's doing this research in the right way. Oof, I've been thinking in my morning meditation lately about how much I need to focus on having impact on the questions that get asked in obesity research. It's such a thing. It keeps hounding me this week in my morning meditation. Research, research, research. People are not asking the right questions. This is a question that needs to get asked. Why are some people salty people and some people fat people and some people umami people? Why does Karen G have not a sweet tooth, but a meat tooth. Why in my rough experience with thousands of, upon thousands of people, do approximately 80% of Brightliners swing sweet and 20% swing starchy, right? Like I don't care about sweets, but don't take away my bread. Don't take away my, away my pasta, right? Um, 
I don't know. I don't know what the difference is. I don't even know if it matters that much. So um, here, here are the two main principles I want you to hear. Number one is most of this is handled by bright lines for sugar and flour and then weighing and measuring the rest. Because let's be frank, and Karen and I were laughing about this, two ounces of cheese just doesn't get you very far, right? If you, if you have a cheese hankering, um, because of course cheese hits the opiate receptors, right? It's straight up addictive. Um, and it's on the Bright Line Eating Food Plan. There are foods that are addictive for a lot of people. Nut butters, good grief, nuts that are straight up addictive for a lot of people. Steak, you know, well, we, we tell people to be careful about bacon, but sausage, whatever, right? Straight up addictive for a lot of people. But for many people, if you start weighing and measuring them, it becomes okay. Like two ounces of cheese is just not enough to get excited about. And it's also, cheese is very convenient like those mozzarella string cheese sticks uh, in most manufacturing packages uh, are exactly one ounce, which means you can grab them. They last forever. You can take them on trips. It's so easy to grab two or three, if you're a guy, uh, string cheese sticks on a road trip or something, right? So as I was setting up the Brightline Eating Food Plan, I was like, let's not eliminate cheese categorically because for most people, once you start weighing and measuring it, it becomes safe, especially if you have eliminated all sugar and all flour, right? Like, so think about it with me. Where is cheese most dangerous? On pizza, well, we don't eat flour. In Doritos, well, that's corn flour in those, you know, chips and we don't eat that, right? Like, where is cheese most dangerous? On bread, we don't eat bread. So when you eliminate sugar and flour categorically, the umami flavor and um, salt and other types of fat, other type, and we weigh and measure our fat, right? Like you can only get so much fat on the Bright Line Eating Food Plan unless you're cheating and like soaking every vegetable in olive oil, which we don't do. So when you eliminate sugar and flour categorically and you're careful about your food preparation, the rest of the highly rewarding foods get consumed in moderation. Now, salt is the one exception. On the Bright Line Eating Food Plan, you can salt your food liberally. And this is where the second principle comes in, which is you are always on your own recognizance to watch your addictive brain and how it lights up. If you feel like you have an addictive brain, not everybody in our community even relates to that notion. We've got people who are threes and twos and ones on the susceptibility scale saying, yeah, I just need help losing this weight. I'm actually not addictive at all. I had coffee the other day with my friend Beth, who was a professor with me, not just at one college, but at two colleges in the past. It was so funny how our careers shifted us. She's lost her excess weight in Bright Line Eating. She's a three on the scale, literally a three and she could not lose her excess weight before Bright Line Eating. It's that hard to lose your weight in this society, even if you're lower on the scale, okay? So, principle number two, you are always on your own recognizance. You are self-responsible to determine whether a food is lighting up for you or not. Sometimes people write in, what does it mean if a food lights up for you? It's like, well, are you thinking about it all day? like planning how you're gonna get it into your next meal? 
Are you feeling like you're having it all the time? Like, is a meal not a meal unless you've got cheese in it, nuts in it? Um, yeah, like even if it's just once a day, like in your breakfast or something, what if you removed it from your breakfast for a week? Would you like grieve a secret dying death inside? That's a sign. Um, we're supposed to love our food. It's supposed to be delicious, but it's not supposed to be something that, um, you know, we love like our kids or our parents or something. So you want to be neutral around your food, meaning if you can't have it one morning, you don't, you hardly even notice. Like if it's not the most convenient thing to eat, you would pick something else and not think twice, right? Not grieve. Um, if you're out and it's like really inconvenient, do you, do you drive across town to the particular grocery store where you get it and disrupt your whole day to make sure you have it for your meal the next day when you could eat something else?